are back, continuing in the Uncle John's vein. Gordon Uncle John Javna appeared on this program, I believe, three times this morning. We, we might want to get him on again. He is always fun. We're continuing in the dumb crooks vein. In this case, it's actually strange lawsuits, but same, same. In this case, the plaintiff was Jose Banks, a convicted bank robber awaiting sentencing at the Metropolitan Correction Center, which is a high-rise federal prison in downtown Chicago. The defendant was the United States government. The lawsuit came about because over the course of several months in 2012, Banks and his cellmate meticulously planned an escape right out of the Shawshank Redemption. Little by little, they clandestinely chiseled a hole in their 17th floor cell wall without the guards noticing. All the while, they were procuring bed sheets and dental floss enough to fashion a rope which could rappel down to the street below from 17 floors. Anyway, according according to the story, on the night of the escape, the two prisoners stuffed clothes into the bed sheets to make it look like they were sleeping, and then escaped through their hole and shimmied down the rope. After a harrowing climb, which Banks later said was traumatizing, they made it to the sidewalk and hailed a cab. Banks was captured a few days later. Conley was captured a few weeks after that. Two years later, while confined to a much more secure section of the prison, Banks filed a lawsuit against the federal government claiming it was negligent in enabling the breakout by not guarding him more closely. Furthermore, he claimed the failed escape had caused him humiliation and embarrassment and damaged his spiritual constitution. The verdict, case dismissed. The judge informed Banks that no one has a right to be better guarded. But he did say that Banks gets credit for chutzpah. Here's an item from the same issue. In this case, it's the Uncle John's 30th anniversary issue. It notes that Bill Tannen, the character in 1989's Back to the Future Part 2, well, for decades it's been rumored that the future version of Biff, a megalomaniac real estate mogul, was based on real-life real estate mogul Donald Trump. In 2015, screenwriter Bob Gale confirmed that Biff, his high-rise casino, and the fact that he makes everyone call him America's greatest folk hero were all modeled after Donald J. Trump. And we want to cite an item here about Herbert the Cool Gent Kent. His claim to fame was he was the longest DJ career in radio history. The details are, in 1944, the 16-year-old Kent got a job hosting a classic music show on WBEZ Radio in Chicago. Over the years, he worked at 11 different stations in and around Chicago and is credited with helping launch the careers of numerous Motown greats like The Temptations, Martha and the Vandellas, and Smokey Robinson. In October of 2016, he celebrated his 88th birthday and his 72nd year on the air. Now that's longevity. It appears Radio Parallax has only 52 years to go to eclipse that record. And here's a rather lengthy item from the 29th issue of Uncle John's, which is just irresistible. Here's the story. If you've ever taken the time to scrutinize your medical bill, you may have noticed that your injury or illness was assigned a medical code for research and billing purposes. These codes are part of a system called the International Statistical Classification of Diseases and Related Health Problems, or ICD for short. It was developed by the World Health Organization to create a single medical classification system for the entire world. Up until the year 2015, the version used in the U.S. was the ninth revision of the code, or ICD-9, introduced in 1979. 
Perhaps because computers in the 70s had so little storage space, the ICD-9 codes were not very descriptive. It notes there were four codes for sprained ankle, but none of them specified whether it was the left or right ankle. There were several codes for heart disease. They didn't go into much detail about what was wrong with the heart. And when you know it, in 1992, the WHO replaced the ICD-9 with the ICD-10, replacing the old system's 14,000 diagnostic codes with 68,000 new ones. Other countries began adopting the ICD-10 as early as 1994, but the U.S. dragged their feet until October of 2015. By the time it was finally adopted, the American version of the code included another 76,000 codes for hospital procedures, codes that were not used in other countries. The ICD-9 used in in the United States had just 4,000 of those procedural codes. At any rate, this brought the total number of codes in the ICD-10 to 144,000. That's eight times as many as they had in the ICD-9. This increase in the number of codes allowed for a much greater level of specificity than had been previously possible. There were now 40 different codes for migraine headaches. Instead of suffering an injury from a ball, which could have been anything from a table tennis ball to a bowling ball, the ICD-10 has specific codes for many types of ball. The code for injury from a golf ball, for example, is W21.04. Did you suffer an injury in an opera house? Perhaps after slipping on a wet restroom floor? Well, the ICD-10 includes a code for injuries sustained in opera houses, Y92.253. And the codes are designed to be combined. So if you happen to be struck by a golf ball in an opera house, your healthcare provider could combine the two codes to get W21.04Y92.253, the code for, quote, struck by golf ball in opera house, unquote. They go on to note that, you know, what gives the ICD-10 its peculiar charm is there's no procedure for eliminating impossible or extremely unlikely code combinations. There's a code for injury caused by being struck by a turtle, presumably one that's fallen from the sky or has been thrown at someone. The code is W59.22XA, and there's a code for injuries sustained in prison swimming pools, Y92.146. Here are some more of the more unusual medical codes. If you see on the bill the code W58.03, you know that the person, hopefully not you, was crushed by an alligator. Now, do keep in mind that being crushed by a crocodile has its own separate code. That would be W58.13. The code W55.21 (laughs) indicates that you have been bitten by a cow should keep in mind that other cow-related injuries are simply coded W55.29. The code V91.35 means you were struck by a falling object due to a canoe or kayak accident. W61.33XA is code for pecked by chicken, comma, first encounter. Now, we certainly hope that you, you personally are never, you know, billed with a code that is W56.22XA, because if that turns up, it means you were struck by an orca, comma, initial encounter. Here's what I don't understand. L81.2, freckles. No, as a physician, I don't know how it is you can bill someone for freckles, but A, I'm, I'm just not up on the latest, uh, some of the latest developments in medicine, I have to admit. Anyway, we've saved, uh, I think, my, my two favorites here uh, uh, for last. 
the code V97.33XD <laughs> means you were sucked into a jet engine, comma, subsequent encounter. Personally, my feeling is if you were sucked into a jet engine and didn't learn the first time, well, you probably then deserve what happened to you next time around. But this one takes the cake. V91.07XD. That means you sustained burns due to water skis on fire, comma, subsequent encounter. Now, I really don't know if any of you out there are still using those old-fashioned water skis made of wood, which could light on fire. But if you are, for God's sakes, take corrective actions, will you? Now, this same issue has a section titled Fascinating Foreign Phrases. I gotta say, most of these did not float my boat, but one did. This is an expression from the Polish language, and I'm going to try and phoneticize this one out. The phrase apparently is nie moż syrk, nie moż malpi, which translates into English as not my circus, not my monkeys. And you know, I think English, which is famous for grabbing things in other languages that are useful, needs to snag this one from the poles. The explanation Uncle John's offers was that it's a uh, a common instance where it might be used is when someone's trying to get someone to help them clean up some kind of messy situation. Well, I tell you, we're adopting this one here at Radio Parallax. It's just too good. Here's an item that's worth a chuckle. Apparently, in the 1970s and 80s, comedian Steve Martin responded to fan mail with a form letter that had several fill-in-the-blanks. And he generally didn't fill in those blanks. Dear blank, what a pleasure it was to receive a letter from you. Although my schedule is very busy, I decided to take the time out to write you a personal reply. Too often, performers lose contact with their audience and begin to take them for granted. But I don't think that will ever happen to me, will it? Blank. I don't know when I'll be appearing close to you, but keep that extra bunk made up in case I get to... Blank. Sincerely, Steve Martin. P.S. I'll always cherish that afternoon we spent together in Rio, walking along the beach, looking at... Blank. All right, from the Uncle John's 27th edition, Canoramic Bathroom Reader, we find a bit of California history I was quite unaware of. It was a section on unusual settlements. The settlement in this case was Holy City. It was nestled in California's Santa Cruz Mountains on the only road between San Jose and Santa Cruz. It was founded by William the Comforter Riker back in 1919 as a home for himself and 30 followers of his quasi-religious sect. Riker began his career as a mentalist with a palm and mind-reading act. After being arrested for bigamy, apparently didn't see that one coming, he fled to Canada where he developed his religious philosophy, the perfect Christian divine way, an oddball mix of abstention from alcohol and white supremacy. One of his manifestos was reportedly written in crayon. On returning to the U.S., Riker founded Holy City as a tourist attraction, hoping the visitors would come for the entertainment and stay to be converted. It had a restaurant, a service station, a zoo, and a lunar observatory, but oddly enough, no church. There was, however, an entertaining collection of billboards, such as one that said, See us if you're contemplating marriage, suicide, or crime. Turned out as long as Holy City was the only stop on the road, it prospered, and Riker made $100,000 a year from its attraction which is about, you know, over, well over a million today. But in 1940, Highway 17 opened up, bypassing the old Santa Cruz Highway and bypassing Holy City. Suddenly, tourists stopped coming. 
1959, Riker lost ownership of the land in an ill-conceived real estate transaction, and most of the buildings were razed. Although Holy City was gone, Riker continued to live in his house among the ruins until his death in 1969. Today, Riker's house and the old post office are the only buildings still standing. Now, those of you who grew up in the Bay Area and who are of a certain age will recall Santa's Village on Highway 17 between Santa Cruz and uh, San Jose. And yeah, it's long gone, but uh, like I said, those of you of a certain age will have some fond memories of the place. From that same issue, we have a a story that's worth a few minutes of our time, I think. If you've ever caught Nova on PBS, and and shame on you if you have not, you'd know that it's, it's it's, it's it's a very cool program. Here's the story of how it got started. Apparently, when PBS executives started planning a science show in the early 1970s, people in the TV business were baffled. A show about science? Were they crazy? Audiences wanted Happy Days and MASH, not educational shows. Well, luckily, those people were wrong. In 1971, an American television producer named Michael Ambrosino was in London. He happened to see some episodes of a science-based British TV show. Ambrosino worked at Boston's legendary WGBH. He'd been there since 1956, just, just a year after it went on the air. WGBH was a pioneer in the American public television business, and by 1971, it produced several groundbreaking shows, including The French Chef, the cooking show hosted by Julia Child, Evening at Pops, and Masterpiece Theater. In 1970, the station had become part of the brand-new government-backed public broadcasting service, with new funding that allowed WGBH to begin thinking bigger. That's why Ambrosino was in London. The 40-year-old was taking part of a year-long fellowship problem with the BBC to learn production techniques. There he observed the making of several episodes of Horizon, an educational science-based series that, to the surprise of BBC officials, was actually pretty popular with viewers. Horizon was a groundbreaking series of its own, having proven that television shows based on scholarly subjects could make for riveting TV. First aired in 1964 and roughly twice a month since then, Horizon covered a wide variety of subjects. The 1969-70 season alone featured episodes on the science of insanity, the psychological and physical effects of alcohol consumption, the history and science of bread, an examination of wolves, and the role of expert scientific witnesses in the courtroom. The format employed a narrator who spoke over footage taken mostly in the field and regularly included appearances by some of the era's leading thinkers who spoke directly into the camera in a loose, informal setting. It was nothing like a dull classroom session, and audiences liked it. So in May of 1971, shortly before returning home to Boston, Ambrosino wrote a five-page letter to Michael Rice, vice president of WGBH, outlining in detail a science show for PBS. His idea was to air a series of shows on a wide variety of science-based subjects just like Horizon. Also like Horizon, WGBH wouldn't make all the shows themselves. They'd produce some of their own episodes, make others in collaboration with teams from around the world, especially at the BBC, and air already finished pieces made entirely by other people. This approach solved several problems, not the least of which being that WGBH didn't have the resources to make all the shows on their own. It also would broaden the show's range of subjects, making them more international and encompassing. So, this thing got green-lighted. Ambrosino went to work. He read science books, watched science programs, met with scientists, including Jonas Salk, attended science conferences, and uh, tried to learn what scientists thought about science and 
and more importantly, what scientists thought the public would most benefit from learning about science. And the show needed a new name. Ambrosino made a list of possible titles circulated to his staff. They came up with more. Two of the names, The Asymptomatic Struggle and Eureka. Mr. Miller notes, but thankfully not, Bodie McBoatface. Apparently Ambrosino got fed up with all these suggestions being made and decided to come up with his own title, which was Nova. A Nova, he explained, is a sudden brilliant star in the firmament, so dazzlingly bright that it's noticed and admired by all. Good name. Anyway, they needed some major funding, and in 1973, it kicked in from the American Association for the Advancement of Science. They donated $40,000 to the project. Another early major donor was the Polaroid Corporation, which was founded and headquartered in Boston and been a longtime supporter of WGBH. By March 4, 1974, NOVA made its debut with the tagline, Science Adventures for Curious Grown-Ups. To give you an idea of just how much the BBC's horizon influenced NOVA, it turned out the Making of a natural history film was a Horizon episode. Was a Horizon episode that had aired on the BBC two years previously. Anyway, it was a hit. It's still a hit. Nova's been on the air for more than forty seasons and has aired more than seven hundred episodes. The show does air in more than one hundred countries. Nova has won a prestigious Peabody Award back in nineteen seventy-five in its second year on the air and has won five more since and more than twenty-five Emmys. And yes, we are fans. All right, working our way back to the 26th edition of Uncle John's, and they referred, in this case, to the comedian-in-chief, Barack Obama, up on stage showing his comedy chops. A couple of weeks back on this program, we read an essay of a, of a Britisher who was condemning Donald Trump as somebody who was completely devoid of a sense of humor, which seemed like a fair criticism to us. And by the way, if in the last four years or the last, you know, for that matter, several decades, you can recall anything Donald Trump said that was witty or amusing, please notify us by dropping us a line at info at radioparallax.com. Oh, Mr. Miller wants to clarify, it, it was intentionally witty or amusing. Anyway, here's a couple of uh, examples of, uh, of Barack Obama. I think these come from the Gridiron Club uh, events every year. The pundit said, you can't win with a name like Obama. There was quite a bit of confusion at first, but it did get me free airtime on Al Jazeera. I got my name Barack from my father, and I got my middle name from someone who obviously didn't think I'd ever run for president. These days, I look in the mirror and have to admit, I'm not the strapping young Muslim socialist I used to be. And I want to especially thank all those members of Congress who took a break from their exhausting schedule of not passing any laws to be here tonight. Yeah, I got a feeling we'll be hearing more from uh, Barack Obama the next four years, which frankly would not be a bad thing. And here's a section entitled, According to a Government Study. The subheadline is, Government-Funded Studies to Find Out Things We Either Knew Already or Didn't Need to Know in the First Place. In this case, there was a study done, a survey of prison inmates by the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration. And no, I didn't know there was a Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, but I guess there is. And I guess as they were sitting around pondering what to do with themselves, they wondered, shouldn't we do a study to conduct why inmates want to escape from prison? It'll only cost the taxpayers $26,000. Yes, evidently inmates were asked to fill out a questionnaire regarding their criminal histories, attitudes toward escaping from prison, and other aspects of prison life. The findings, and I'm sure, I'm sure you're on the edge of your seat waiting for these. The findings were that one, escape is both a function of the characteristics of individuals 
and the situations in which they find themselves. Yeah, well, sure, it's that age-old debate between environment and, and heredity, right? Their second finding was that the escaper is more likely than other inmates to be among other things, to be one who has been turned down for parole and one who is not scheduled for parole review. Okay, that makes sense. Not going to get paroled anytime soon? Might as well escape. And finally, analyses tend to depict the escaper, particularly the multiple escaper, as a career criminal. Yes, your tax dollars at work. All right, and here's an item from the 25th anniversary, Uncle John's, which is specially crafted for Mr. McMillan. It turns out, and I did not know this, and I don't think he did either, that The Big Lebowski, the Coen Brothers' cult classic, was in fact an update of Raymond Chandler's 1939 noir novel, The Big Sleep. They used the L.A. setting and many of the characters, but they changed Philip Marlowe, P.I., to Jeffrey the Dude Lebowski. I think there were several versions of The Big Sleep, one with Humphrey Bogart, one with Robert Mitchum, I think. We'll have to look this up. Make a note of that, Mr. McMillan. Do research before speaking in the microphone. That's something Rush Limbaugh should consider taking up, by the way. Now, this particular book notes that in China, menus in restaurants frequented by Western tourists are carefully translated in English and easy to understand. But if you eat where the locals eat, you may experience a phenomenon known as Chinglish. Translations that are incomprehensible and often hilarious. It's noted that translating Chinese into English is made difficult because many Chinese symbols are pictographs or graphic depictions of the word they denote. Pictographs are combined to create symbols for new words. The word calf, for example, combines the symbols of cow and boy. That's how in China you might notice on the menu where leg of veal is served that you might find that cowboy leg is what's listed on the menu. Chinese symbols can also mean more than one thing. The character for dry, one of the two symbols used in the name for a dry pot type of cooking, can also mean do. In English, do can be a slang for, well, they decide not to spell it out. But they do know that's why when a dish called dry pot rabbit is on the menu, the English translation sometimes describes the rabbit performing an intimate act on the cooking pot. And they note, you know, colorful language can be a problem. How would you translate buffalo wings into Mandarin? How about corn dogs, ladyfingers, tater tots? And of course, the Chinese love colorful idiomatic names. According to legend, a popular tofu dish called bean curd made by a pockmarked woman really was created by such a woman. And because a Sichuan dish of minced pork on bean thread noodles looks like ants climbing a tree, that's what it's called. So, Sometimes, even when a dish is correctly translated, it can seem pretty odd to the uninitiated. And here, in fact, are some real examples found on menus in China. Let's start with government abuse chicken and good-to-eat mountain. I'm not sure a lot of tourists are going to bite on strange flavor noodles and certainly not blow up a flatfish with no result. Here's a couple of my personal favorites. Chicken, rude, and unreasonable. Which, frankly, I would prefer over fragrant bone in garlic in strange flavor. Anyway, if you've been to China and you tried spiced salt, blows up pig hand, let us know how it was. 
All right, and final item, which circles us back to that quote by Douglas Adams in the first segment about uh, that common mistake people make when trying to sign something that's completely foolproof is to underestimate the ingenuity of complete fools. Well, it's not going to stop people that are going to slap warning labels onto various uh, things being sold. So we proudly give you actual warning labels, starting with one from a salt packet. Warning. Contains salt. How about this one from a can of aerosol cheese? For best results, remove cap. One from an air freshener. For use by trained personnel only. And no, we have no idea where it is you can obtain that needed training for use of an air freshener. Here's one that makes a certain amount of sense on an information booklet. Do not use if you cannot see clearly to read the information in the information booklet. Well, sure. Here's one that's very contemporary, which which maybe you've seen. It was on a dust mask, or I guess we would say face mask these days. Does not supply oxygen. Here's a warning label off a bicycle. Removing the wheel can influence the performance of the bicycle. Yeah, we're pretty sure that's true. Here's one for letter opener. Safety goggles recommended. Yeah, I think any ophthalmologist will tell you, you've, you've got to be careful when you're opening those envelopes. All right, and my two favorites. One for a birthday badge for two-year-olds, because it says on it, I am two on one side. But the warning label suggested not to be used by children under three years of age. And finally, my personal favorite, one from a bottle of rubbing alcohol. The warning label states, avoid contact with eyes, ears, brain and surrounding membranes yeah for gosh sakes try keep that alcohol away from your arachnoid membranes and meninges for god's sake no good will come of that anyway in one of the uncle john's books they described the boogaloo and other dances from the 60s and suggested that the way you could check out the boogaloo was to just google james brown which of course we did And since this is radio, we are unable to share that experience with you, the listener, but I do think we could end on one of my personal favorites, James Brown's to-do list. And yes, there are 10 items on James Brown's to-do list, starting with one, get up, two, get on up, three, get up off of that thing, four, get on the good foot, five, get up and do my thing. Six, get Papa a brand new bag. Seven, give it up or turn it loose. Eight, make it funky. Nine, don't take no mess. And number 10, James Brown's to-do list, stay on the scene. Get up, get on up. Get up, get on up. Stay on the scene. Get on up like a sex machine. Get on up. All right, that about does it for our holiday show. Hopefully a little bit lighter fare for your listening pleasure. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. And although I am not the godfather of soul or the minister of the new super funk, I am your faithful host, Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week. Bye.